for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. little word about my favorite basketball player of all time. Maybe he was your favorite too back in the 80s and 90s. Of course, I'm talking about the great Michael Jordan. Everybody called him Air Jordan back then. He was an extraordinary, extraordinary basketball player. Probably the greatest scorer that the league has ever seen. Uh, career average 30.1 points per game. He has six, yes, count them, six championship rings every single time. He was the MVP of that finals series all six times. If you've ever watched basketball and uh, maybe in the last 20 or 30 years, and thought, hey, that was a pretty good move. That's the guy who probably invented that move that you were inspired by. He also inspired thousands and thousands of teenagers like myself to practice for hours and hours on our reverse layups and our fadeaway uh, jumpers. He, 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 was, he was the guy who made basketball come alive for me. He was clean cut, he was articulate, but he was fiercely uh, competitive. And everybody in my generation, wanted to be like Mike. Here's the problem. Uh, no matter what shoes I wore, no matter how much Gatorade I drank, no matter how many bowls of Wheaties I had in the morning, me and everybody else and even the best basketball players of my generation would admit there is only ever going to be one Michael Jordan. And the reason why I bring that up is because Here's something that we need to know today. Sometimes imitation only leads to frustration. Sometimes imitation leads to frustration. Some people have a misunderstanding about what it means to be a Christian. And maybe they haven't really studied the faith and they think, hey, I like Jesus, so I'm going to live my life like Jesus. I'm going to serve like Jesus. I'm going to give like Jesus. I'm going to be humble like Jesus. I'm going to be generous like Jesus. I'm going to stop sinning like Jesus. Now, I understand there's some nobility to the idea of that goal, but the problem with that is actually that Jesus Christ did not primarily come to be your example. Some of you think that's total heresy. Some of you are going, wait a minute, didn't Jesus say, you know, follow me, I'm confused. Hang on to those objections. I will try to answer them throughout the message today. But for now, would you just try this on? Would you just hear me out and think with me about maybe there's a different way, maybe there's a better way. That's what our passage is about today. But to set up our passage, I have to fast forward to Romans chapter 7 to show you a tension that exists in the text. Paul says this later on. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I... For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Question. Can anybody relate to this guy up on the screen? Anybody? Raise your hand. High and proud. 
Let the record show that is 100% of us, except for those of you who are not being honest this morning today. <laughs> Have you ever stayed up late when you knew you had to change the clocks forward the next morning? Have you ever eaten or drank extra calories that you knew you shouldn't consume? Have you ever... I felt like you ought to exercise, but you didn't exercise. Have you ever made some commitment you couldn't possibly keep? Have you ever committed never to blow up in anger like that again, but then nevertheless end up failing, saying, I did it again, I did it again, I did it again. This is a common human experience. There's these things I want to do, but I don't do them. There's these things I don't want to do. I do do them. I even do things that are like self-destructive. We have an amazing capacity to be self-destructive, uh, even though I know things are bad for me, and uh, they're bad for my health. They're bad for my life. They're, they're bad for my relationships. I know, but I still do them. This is not a new problem. This is humankind's oldest problem. These guy, this guy wrote these words over 2000, almost 2,000 years ago. Furthermore, this, this on the screen here, this is not the experience of like a pagan. This is the experience of one of the best behaved people that you would ever have met. This is the experience of a religious person. And so we all have this problem. And so that's the problem with imitation. That's the problem when you go to the self-help section in the bookstore. The self who's trying to help you is like an idiot. I realize this is not what we want to hear. We know that trying harder and hard work does work in other parts of our lives and in our society. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps here. We're Americans, right? Hard work is very respectable and it's highly esteemed in this culture, yes? We are a culture of doers. Bob the Builder asks us, can you fix it? And we say what? Yes, we can. And so because we've been trained to think this way, we're going to have a hard time letting go of this mindset in the spiritual realm. But let me just remind you of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ who said, apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, when it comes to my spiritual problems, when the question comes, can we fix it? Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, says, no, you can't. There's got to be another way. And thankfully, there is another way. That's what our passage is about. Please turn with me to Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. As you turn there, let me just give you a fair warning. This is some of the most difficult, some of the most complicated, some of the most confusing verses that we find in the whole Bible. And so my desire, with the advice of Albert Einstein, is to make things as simple as possible, but not more simple than they actually are. My desire is to to put into simple terms a profound truth so that we can all understand it uh, today. What you're going to see is three parts to the message. Uh, the outline goes like this. We're going to see humanity's ruin, and then we're going to see humanity's rescue, and then we're going to see humanity's reign. What we have here at the end of chapter 5 is kind of the end of a big section in the book of Romans, and it becomes like a hinge section. It's the conclusion of everything that has really come before, but it's also extremely foundational to take us where he needs to go, especially in Romans 6, 7, and 8. So this is like a, a crux passage, and what you're going to see here really is a comparison. It's a comparison between two Adams, the first Adam of Eden and, and, and the fall, and then the second Adam of the cross and of heaven, Jesus Christ. And so that's where we're headed today. 
the ruin, the re- rescue, and the rain. And uh, it's going to be exciting, but before we do that, we should, we should really pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for preserving this text. And when we think about it, when I think about it, I think, you know, what can I say about this? I feel so inadequate to explain these profound truths uh, today. So the preacher asks for your help, and I do so desperately. Uh, would you now uh, just give us, by your spirit, the, the illuminating power to understand your word today? What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us, for your beautiful name. Amen. So Our passage today comes because Paul has made some profound, profound uh, conclusions at the beginning of chapter 5. And so he, he, he's, he's told us some amazing things, and the question that he's answering is, how could that really be possible through just the obedience and act of one man? And Paul's going to say, that's actually not without precedent, okay? So pick it up with verse 12. He begins like this, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Here for the first time in the book of Romans, Paul actually takes us back to the Garden of Eden, where, of course, both Adam and Eve sinned against God. But but Adam, being the head of his family, is singled out here as the one bearing the ultimate responsibility for sin entering into the world. And that sin led to death, which then spread to all people. So notice it's like a three-stage chain reaction, right? Number one, sin enters the world through Adam. Number two, death enters the world because of sin. Number three, death spreads to all. Now why? He says, because all sinned. Now that's awkward, Paul. Why do you say all sinned? Don't you mean all sin, present tense? This is, this is the kind of passage that Peter was probably reading when he says to us in 2 Peter 3, Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. Right here is a good example. Now, in the Greek, the, the tense here is not just past tense. It's actually a tense we don't have in English. It's called the aorist tense. And what it means is something occurred in the past, but it's like a snapshot of a completed action that has occurred in the past. Think of it like a Kodak moment. All sinned. When Adam sinned in the garden, what Paul is saying is that, in a sense, time stood still for a moment. In a deep and mysterious sense, we were all there with Adam in that moment. That's what he's saying. Here's the thing. Paul is not saying that humans die because we are like Adam, meaning we sin like Adam. Instead, he's actually saying that we all die because we are in Adam. A while back, uh, Billy Joel had, had a song. The song was talking about all the pro- problems in the world and you know, how you know, current events at that time, the world was just really messy and there was this just big list of uh, you know, big issues in, in the culture and the song was basically them saying, you know, it's not our fault, it's not our fault. Does anybody remember that song that I'm, t- that I'm, that I'm talking about? You know, you, know, you know what I'm talking about up there in the balcony? Yeah, well, this is the one. You guys remember? All right, all right, knock it off up there, balcony. Okay, so, see, what Paul is saying in Romans 5.12 is Billy Joel was wrong. We actually did start the fire. We actually were there in a deep and mysterious sense in Adam. 
We all actually did start the fire. Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and then on the heels of sin came death. If everybody's with me, say amen. amen. Okay, that was hard. Verse 13 is even harder, though. Take a look at this one. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Again, Paul, kind of confusing. Let me just try to explain to you. The law, of course, being referred to here is the law of Moses. That had been a major theme prior in the book of Romans. And Paul points out here that sin existed before the law. But without a law, sin is not charged against anyone's account, he says. And it's not that sin wasn't there. It's just that it wasn't as obvious that God's law was being broken because God had not yet given his law. Think of it like a mirror, if you will. If there's no mirror, you don't even realize the flaws that are there. Now, the flaws are still there. You just can't see them because you're not in front of a mirror, right? That's why God gives us wives, to point out these things so we, we can see, that, hey, you know, cream cheese, Dave, on your cheek. Okay, so the mirror helps us just to see what's already there. That's what the law does. That's what Paul will say later in this passage, right? Verse 20, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Or your version might say the law entered that sin might abound. In other words, the law was given to magnify sin. Take a look at this picture. Notice especially the smudges. <laughs> they got there because something about this sign provokes something inside of me, just wanting to touch the wet paint. Why? Because when the law is given, it provokes my sinful desires, which were already there, but with the law expressed, now we can see them expressed more clearly. Uh, interestingly, there's actually a piece of interactive artwork in the Natural History Museum in London called Do Not Touch, and it's a sociological study of human nature. When passing by this exhibit, the patron is faced with a decision. The sign on the floor in the circle there clearly says, do not touch, but there's no barrier. And then if you go past the sign toward the pole in the center of the display, a warning sound goes off and grows louder and louder and louder as you approach the pole. What do most people do? Most people, like these two boys, instinctively feel that all good laws are meant to be broken and they quickly move in violation of the law in spite of the warnings to touch the center pole at the center of the display where there they receive a small but mildly painful electric shock by touching the pole. And what's crazy is this is so appealing that most guests touch the pole again and again and again and again. This is who we are. <laughs> this is human nature. The law puts it on display, showing us how willing and eager we are to touch, to say, to do that which we ought not to do. Amen. Drop down to verse 14. Paul says, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Paul's point here is that everyone experienced death, even before the law. People were sinning, and they experienced death. 
Now, some people talk about death like it's just natural and it's just transitional and it's just this lovely thing. That is not what the Scripture speaks about when it speaks about death. Death is the enemy. Death is a result of sin. Think of sin like a disease. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world like a disease. And if you have sin, you have this disease. And the reason you know you're a sinner is not because you're dead. It's because you're dying. You're like flowers that have been pulled from their roots. They might look alive for a little while, but you are on your way out. We all are. 100% of us are dying. This is what Genesis teaches, right? If you read the fall, Genesis 3, you see what happened there. Two chapters later in Genesis chapter 5, you will read these words, and he died, 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 like a constant refrain teaching us this is the result of sin, death. Paul says death reigned because death is a result of sin. And sin was a result of us being in Adam. Now let me come over here and try to show you something. And I I saw Pastor Andy Stanley do this one time. I thought it was a helpful illustration. So imagine if this jar here represents Adam. And imagine if there was one man back there named Adam. Of course, we'll start with him. He sinned. Now, of course, he has a sin nature. Then he has a couple kids, right? Cain and Abel, they are now in Adam. Seth, when he was born, he's now in Adam. This is me right here. I was born in sin in Adam, right? This is my wife, Julie. She was also... Let me just put her right there for a second. <laughs> Sorry, she... These are my three kids, Alex, Michaela, Felicity, in sin, in sin. Definitely... <laughs> in sin. Right here, this, this right here, this represents Billy Graham, Billy Graham in sin, okay? This right here, let's say this is like Mother Teresa in sin, okay? Right here, this is like your favorite pastor, like your most, you know, your, you know, your, you know, your, this is Peter Pendel right here in sin, all right? So, okay, this right here, this is the sweetest little grandma in this church. There you are, sweet little grandma, everybody loves you, couldn't hear it, in sin, all right? In sin. Right here, this, this right here is the rest of the staff, okay? We got Scott Rajapi in sin. We got Johnny Graves in sin. Pastor Bob, definitely in sin, definitely in sin. All in sin. Rachel Rickershauser, even Rachel Rickershauser, that's right. You'd say, Rachel? Yep, Rachel, in sin. Everybody in sin. In fact, the whole world, Paul says, was actually in Adam, and the whole world was born in sin. That means every single Jewish person, every single Muslim, every single Buddhist, they are all born with this problem. They are all in Adam. Even Julie, sorry, Julie, but everybody was born in sin. That's what Paul is trying to teach us here. Uh, Those of you who have kids, your parents, when your kids get around two, two and a half, all of a sudden they start like bucking the system and I don't know what happened. They're this sweet little child and I don't know what, I don't know what got into them. Paul says, I do. It was sin. It's in everybody. It's big. It's bad. It's ugly. And where sin goes, death goes. And this thing is universal because of Adam's sin. This is life in Adam. If you're with me, say amen. Theologians call this the doctrine of federal headship. Big word. It just means that Adam was selected by God to be humanity's representative. So when he messed up, it means so did we. 
Think about avid sports fans and how they talk about their team when they win something. They say, we won the Super Bowl or we won the World Series, right? And I'm like, okay, we won. Did, did any of you actually go out on the field? Did any of you actually even catch one pass? Did any of you even play one minute of time in that game? But no, but somehow we won. There's this sense of like the collective identity. That's what's going on here in our, in our text. Or another way to think about this is like our government. Our government, we have these elected officials. They're there to represent us. We even have a house of representatives. And when they make a decision, we live with the consequences of that decision, right? If our political representatives uh, vote to raise taxes, we pay more taxes. If our political representatives vote to go to war, we're at war. You can't say, well, no, I'm not at war. Yes, you are. We're at war because they represent us and their decisions affect our lives. That's the way it is with Adam and the whole human race. He was our representative, and what he did affected us all. Now, right away, what you're thinking is probably what I was thinking when I was first learning about this. That's not fair. This whole concept really goes against my mindset of Western individualism. In the West, each person is like an island unto themselves. We have this sense of I'm responsible as an individual, and that's it. You're on your own. But the Bible actually doesn't take that approach. And so if we'll use the lens of the scriptures to help our understanding, we're going to see that there's actually this solidarity going on. There's actually this thing of the human family. There's actually a, a group identity uh, going on in the text, and we are together in Adam. Now, some people say, no, no way. I'm not, I would have never done it the way Adam did it. I would have never eaten of that fruit in the garden. If I was in the garden, man, I would have chopped that tree down. That's what I would have done in the garden, right? That's how I would have handled that. That's kind of how we think. But friends, when we think that way, with all due respect, we are not thinking in alignment with what the scriptures say is true. No, you wouldn't have chopped that tree down. Why not? Because God is the one who chose Adam to be your perfect representative, and frankly, every time I rebel against God in my own life, I show that I would have done the same thing that Adam did. This is why the law came. Uh, commentator Douglas Moo says, the law makes little atoms out of us all. Let me put it this way. In this passage, Paul is not thinking of sin here like a verb. He's thinking of sin here like a noun. Sin here is it's not referring to like individual acts of sin. Sin here is, is like, like a force. Sin here is, is more like a, just some people call it the sin nature, that proclivity towards rebellion. It's, it's not just an action. It's, it's a power. It reigns. This is exactly why imitation leads to frustration. Now, this is part of the problem why many people can't make headway in dealing with their sins, because they're only dealing with the verb sins. They're never dealing with the noun sin. Amen. That's what this passage is actually all about. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Can we say that together? We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's very important for you to realize that our lives are wrapped up in our ancestors, right? You wouldn't have exist if it wasn't for your grandpa. 
Paul is saying we are sinners, not because we sin, but because of Adam's sin. And many believers still think that they became sinners by committing sin. That is not what the Word of God actually teaches. What it says is that we are sinners because of Adam's sin. The reason this is so important, I might be belaboring this, and sorry if I am, but it's important because you have to understand this. It is impossible for you to solve a problem when you don't even know what's wrong in the first place. Right? If I, if I open up an electrical panel and something's going wrong in there, I can stare at that thing all day long. If I don't know what's going on inside of an electrical panel, I can't actually solve the problem. Many of you have been trying to solve you for a long time, and you spent like money on it. You've like gone away and tried to work on it. Uh, your spouse maybe sent you somewhere to work on you. Uh, you went to counseling or whatever, workshops, intensives, what, it, and it hasn't worked. And you might have a theory on what's wrong with you, but you're not really sure. And if you don't know for sure, your solutions are going to fall short. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Once upon a time, a man purchased a white mouse to use as food for his pet snake. He, he dropped the unsuspecting mouse into the snake's glass cage, where the snake was sleeping in a bed of sawdust. The tiny mouse had a serious problem on his hands. He was in mortal danger. At any moment, the snake could awake and he could be swallowed alive. Uh, obviously, the mouse needed to come up with a brilliant plan. And so the terrified creature quickly set out to cover the snake with sawdust until it was completely buried. And with that, the mouse uh, you know, felt a little bit better about his situation. That, that's an image of our world's response to Adam, our world's response to sin, our world's response to death. Our leaders often, frankly, don't know what to do with the snake. They don't know how to handle the sin nature so they do the best they can, which is just basically to throw some sawdust on the snake. When corruption is found, the government announces new laws to make sure that doesn't happen again. Sawdust on the snake. When domestic violence erupts from our athletes, the league suspends them and requires them to go to educational programs. Sawdust on the snake. When terrorists kill innocent people, we seek to kill them back. Now, while all these things might be the appropriate response on one level, in reality, they do nothing to change the real problem of sin, which resides inside of the human heart. Why? Because our sin nature cannot be legislated away or educated away or even killed. Amen. We are just like this mouse sitting in the cage, and all we can ever really have is false hope, false security, and a counterfeit temporary joy. Is there anything greater than Adam's sin? Is there any force in this universe that's more powerful than Adam and his sin? Well, to answer that, we're introduced to movement two, humanity's rescue. Now, at the end of verse 14, you may have noticed that it said Adam was a type or a pattern of the one to come. And this is why the Bible refers to Jesus as the second Adam, which might be confusing to you because you're like, you know, Christmas story. I thought they said, you shall call his name Jesus. They, they didn't say call him Adam number two. But here's the connection. Just as Adam represented the whole human race, so also Paul says Jesus became a representative as well, but a much better one. 
And so here he begins this contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. And I want you to notice ways in which they're similar, but more importantly, notice ways in which they are very, very different. Start with 15. Paul says, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So there's this contrast. He, he starts here with the, the, the gift versus the trespass. The trespass, remember, he's referring to the sin of Adam in the garden. This came through one man, he says. But the gift, he says, also came through one man, the man Jesus. And Paul says the gift is not like the trespass. It's different. But how so, Paul? Well, he goes on. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. So here's his explanation of the gift. Did you catch what it is? It is the gift of justification. Justification being the declaration of righteousness. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. There's two sides, right? On the one side, we have condemnation. On the other side, we have justification. And we are not justified because of our works. We're justified because of the work of Christ. This is... This is why he calls it a gift. This is why we call what Jesus did on the cross his finished work, because it is finished, it is done, it is completed, it is over. You say, well, I, you know, I didn't really do anything to become righteous. That's exactly right. You did nothing to become righteous, and Jesus did nothing to become sin. This is the way imputation works. Just as those who are in Adam die because of his sin imputed to them, so also those who are in Christ live because of his righteousness imputed to them. Just as it is not at root the personal sinning of those in Adam that brought their condemnation, so it is not at root the personal goodness of those who are in Christ that brings their justification. Just as all that is true of the first Adam was true of us, when we are united to Christ... By faith, all that is true of our new Adam is now true of us. Amen. Now, the contrast continues in the next few verses, so buckle your seatbelts. 17, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, stay with me, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made sinners. Righteous. Now let's pause there. That was a lot. I love these three verses. There is so much truth here. We could spend a year on these three verses. Notice them just for a moment. The one trespass in verse 18, that's Adam's sin in the garden. The one righteous act is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Here's what he's saying. Try to get this. Adam did something wrong and it affected everyone. Jesus did something right, and it undid what Adam did. Where Adam failed in the garden, Jesus succeeded in Gethsemane. Adam's selfishness in Eden took life from us. 
Christ's selflessness in Gethsemane gave life to us. Adam sought to, sought to exalt himself. Jesus sought to humble himself. The trespass was an act of self-exaltation, whereas the gift was an act of self-sacrifice. See, Adam ventured into the realms of the things above and brought death, whereas Christ ventured into the things below and brought life. On the one hand, we have Adam. On the other hand, we have Jesus. On the one hand, we have disobedience. On the other hand, we have obedience. On the one hand, we have sin. On the other hand, we have grace. On the one hand, we have condemnation. On the other hand, we have justification. On the one hand, we have death. On the other hand, we have life. Philippians chapter 2 describes the work of Christ this way. He being in the very form of God did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. John Stott summarizes this beautifully. You can't say it better than this. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's good news. That's how we were rescued. Is there anything greater than Adam's sin? Is there anything greater than the sin of the one man, Adam? Answer, Paul says, yes, Jesus Christ. The, the main point of this passage here, the main point of this text, get this, is that what Christ has done for all who are in him is far greater than what Adam did for all who are in him. John Stott says it well. So then, whether we are condemned or justified, whether we are spiritually alive or dead, depends on which humanity we belong to, whether we still belong to the old humanity initiated by Adam or to the new humanity initiated by Christ. In other words, now we have a new federal head available. And that person's name is, of course, Jesus Christ. And so as all were born in Adam, when you become a Christian, you are taken out of Adam and you are placed into Christ. And in the spiritual realm, a deep and significant transaction takes place. When you come out of Adam, place your faith in Christ and you are transferred into Christ. And this is what we want to be all about as a church, taking people out of Adam and into Christ. And every time somebody places their faith in Jesus Christ, we get to bear witness to them being transferred right here, out of Adam and into Christ, out of Adam and into Christ, out of Adam and into Christ. This is what we're all about as a church. This is our mission, to take every person who is in Adam and put them within earshot of the gospel of Jesus Christ and preach this gospel so that many, many people can be transferred out of Adam and into Jesus Christ as many as we possibly can. But here's the thing. There's still more. There's still more who need to know. There's still more who don't know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is what we're all about as a church, to expand the table for the glory of God, to take people from being in Adam and tell them about the gospel so that they will now be in Christ. That is how we are rescued. That is the good news of the gospel. Amen. Let me go back to the mouse. 
Our little white mouse sat nervously by the snake covered in sawdust. He had a false hope that things would turn out okay for him. He had a false assurance of peace and a false joy as he rejoiced in his clever work. Yet the owner of the mouse, when he looked into the cage and saw what the mouse had done, he took pity on the silly creature. He, he reached in and removed the mouse from the cage, put the mouse in another cage, and gave the mouse as a gift to his daughter where the mouse lived out his little mouse life in peace, lasting joy, and great hope. So it is with you and I. Adam, sin, death, they're all bad. But much more is Jesus' righteousness and life. Adam's blunder has been surpassed by Christ's obedience. Willful sin is trumped by Christ's righteousness. And death has been swallowed up in Christ's victory. In other words, we were rescued from the snake. But that's not all. We could end the sermon there, but that's not all. Notice, again, verse 17. It says that we will reign in life. Paul is not just talking about going to heaven when we die, although that's true. Paul is taking it a step further here. He's saying there's a new way. There's a new lifestyle that you can take on. There's something new that's true of you right now. And with this gift, you can reign in this life. In other words, he says you have this brand new mode of operation in this life. Just as the act of Adam led us to being in bondage as slaves to sin, so also the act of Christ leads us to reigning as princes and co-heirs with the King of Kings. I love the way Andy Stanley says it. Adam did one thing, and it resulted in condemnation for all who were born in Adam. Jesus in one act of obedience that mirrors but overpowers the one act of disobedience has provided a way, not to just go to heaven when we die, although that's true, has provided a way for us to live right now a new life. So this leads us to the final movement, humanity's reign. See, Paul is going to continue this amazing truth in these next few verses, and over the next few weeks, we'll see how much he unpacks this. But he continues with some profound truths that affect us right now. Take a look at the, the final two verses of our text today, 20 and 21. He says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love this description here. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Some translations say grace superabounded in Christ or super increased. It's kind of untranslatable. Increased all the more. There's this idea of an unending, overflowing, abundant, profound grace. Because God's grace is infinite. And so you take infinite and you subtract something, you still have infinite. God's grace is more powerful than our that our sin, God's grace overwhelms sin and triumphs over death. I want you to see here that what Paul is trying to do primarily 
is to lift up the uniqueness and the singularity and the, the greatness of Jesus Christ in this text, who we worship. This text should cause us to focus on Christ and love him and worship him and be satisfied in him and in him alone. The hymn writer said it this way, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. So what does that mean for us today, Pastor Dave? How does that affect our lives? Well, I think there's at least two ways. The first way is this. It means if you're here today and you haven't made this decision and something in your mind is thinking, you know, my sin is too big or my sin is too great or Christ can't forgive me because you don't know what I did. If that's the way you're thinking, you need to hear these words. No one is beyond the grace of Jesus Christ. Some of you need to hear that today. There is no sin in your life or in your past that is greater than the grace of Jesus Christ. You need to come to him by faith and receive that gift today. Now, when you receive this grace, it's not about working hard or achieving. Remember in verse 17, it says, those who receive the gift of righteousness. It's not about achieving, it's about receiving. It's about being transferred by faith from Adam into Christ, and we make that transfer by faith alone. Now, others of you, you're already Christians, and you need to hear this message, too, for an entirely different reason. You need to realize that there is actually a different way to live the Christian life. There's an entirely new way to pursue being a good person besides imitation, Because the Christian life is not just about imitation. Imitation only comes after imputation. And you can't get those out of order. Only after you understand imputation, the righteousness of Christ that's been granted to you as a gift, only then can you even think about imitation. And it's not going to come about by your human effort or human exertion. It's going, to be, it's going to be the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in and through you. Fruit is produced in and through you, not by you. It's His fruit. It's His Holy Spirit who is at work in you. This is the way of grace. And as God draws us into His presence... Scott Saul says, if you want to be more like Jesus, stop trying to be more like Jesus and spend more time being with Jesus. As you spend more time with Jesus who welcomes you into his presence, you will become more like him. As you remain in him, Jesus said in John chapter 15, I am the vine. You're like the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, then you will bear much fruit. There's a new way. There's a new approach to to living the Christian life that's not works-based at all. And so if works are your thing and you go, okay, God, thank you so much for dying on the cross for me, I'll take it from here. And you're just going to work the rest of the way by yourself. 
Well, good luck. That was Paul before he met Jesus. We read that earlier in Romans 7. It doesn't last. That's the thing about willpower. Your will doesn't have enough power. You need a power greater than yourself. What is greater than Adam? The person of Jesus Christ. Now, on a very personal note, I got to say that this truth right here completely changed my life. I discovered, friends, after trying, that I can't live the Christian life. The Christian life is not just difficult. It's impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't need an example to follow. If that's what we got, I'm out. I need a savior. I need to be rescued. And this is not just a one-time thing that happened in my past. I got to remind myself of this gospel every single day. This is why Paul says there's this new way. Something's happened to you now. You've been transferred from Adam to Christ. There's this fundamental change and that this change happened at the core of who you are. And in the verses that follow, in the chapters that follow, Paul says, I want to teach you all about this new way and live out the implications of this great change. And we'll get there as we progress in this series. But this is a foundation that he has to lay. And so I thought I would give you an illustration that I, I find to be helpful. You know, this week... I saw on CNN that one of the families in our church is, is uh, striving for an international adoption, but the thing with the coronavirus is kind of putting them behind, and, and of course, you know, their prayer is to get there as soon as possible and, and get their new child. And I thought about that story, which was so profoundly done, and we're praying for you guys, but I thought about, you know, that, this is a little bit like that. This is a little bit like an international adoption. Think about it. Here's a baby, or here's a toddler, or here's a Here's an older kid living in an orphanage, and there's several layers of authority over there, right? There's this government, uh, there's also the authority over the orphanage, then there's leaders inside of the orphanage, and there's these things that are dictated to this child, right? Here's where you're going to live, here's where you're going to sleep, here's, every, here's what you have to eat, everything is dictated. But then, with the stroke of a pen, with the stroke of a pen, and this child may not even be aware of when this pen stroke happens. With one gesture, all of a sudden, that little child goes from orphan to family member. With the stroke of a pen, all of a sudden, that little precious child goes from, by anyone's standard, you know, poverty, having nothing, no future, no financial future, to by anybody's standards, if they're coming here to America, wealth. It's amazing. Now, even though that's done, when the papers are signed, it's going to take that child some time to get used to that new reality, isn't it? It's going to take them some time to kind of wake up to this whole concept. Of like, I guess everything's different now. I, I'm not used, who I used to be. I've been taken out of one sphere and placed into another sphere altogether. That's a little bit of a picture of spiritually what's going on today in our passage, if you will. Now, with the stroke of a pen, that government, that institution, that orphanage, those leaders, they lose all authority over that child. They can write, they can call, 
They can text you, brother, they can show up at your door. And mom and dad can say, you have no authority over our child anymore. They belong to us. Friends, there is a heavenly father who loves you to death, who has longed to rescue from the orphanage of sin. And whether you knew it or not, whether you understood it or not, 2,000 years ago, a legal transaction has taken place through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And you have the opportunity to, by faith, move from one family into another family. And now with the stroke of a pen, in a heavenly adoption, you belong to God. And the death Christ died, you died. And the life Christ lived, you lived. And when he was raised from the dead, you were raised from the dead. And now that you have faith, now you are actually no longer in Adam. Now you are in Christ. This is the foundation that Paul is going to lay right here, and it will take us where we need to go for the next several weeks. But before we go there, we have to establish something right from the beginning. And it's this question. It's a choice we all have to make. It's a choice between the identity of Adam and the identity of Christ. Whose identity will you embrace? Will you continue in Adam? Or will you continue in a new perspective in your life? What would that look like in your struggle against sin? How would this help you living out this new identity? These are the questions that we're going to wrestle with over the next several weeks together. But for now, my encouragement to you is to embrace who God says you are. Amen. Let me invite the worship team to come as we respond. And as they do, church, can you just imagine? Can you just imagine if we all got this? Can you imagine a church full of men and women and young men and young women who understood that their identity is no longer in Adam, but their identity is actually in Christ? Can you imagine that, church? Let's be that church. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, right now, some of us are thinking, if only. We, we so desperately want this to be a reality in our lives. Would you now open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the reality of who we are in you? Today, we say thank you for rescuing us from the ruin. And today, we fix our eyes on you and we want to be all that you say we are. We give you praise, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose grace is greater than all our sin. In his name we pray. Amen.